It's so good to be back here. We've been away on leave for a bit, and thank you. So good to see you. I know it's holidays are a real good time for recreation and that, and I hope you're getting some rest over this time. And, um, but on Tuesday, Deborah and I are off to South Africa. So we'll be here this weekend. Um, um, sometimes people, when we walk in now, because we've been away so much, want to give us a visitor's card, and I understand that. <laughs> I'm just joking, but, uh, but um, uh, we're going to an apostolic, international apostolic conference, uh, Paul and Katie will be joining us, and the apostolic team that we're a part of, believe it or not, represents country, uh, 60 countries around the world, and this is a time for us as an international team to come together and pray and seek God not only for the future of our uh, home nations, but hear what God's doing in the nations of the world. So if you can be praying for that, Deborah and I will also be ministering in some churches there and, and seeing family. So we'll be back in a few weeks' time, and um, so looking forward to that. Uh, there's no place like home, eh? No place like home. And uh, your own bed. Well, today I want to speak on, uh, I felt God um, impress on me a while ago to speak on redemption. And what an amazing, huge, deep theological subject that is. And, and uh, I've had to encapsulate all that I've been reading and studying into about three hours. So if you brought a lunch bag, that would help. No, to 30 minutes. And so, um, even this morning, very early, so I've been trusting God in that. And I had just had the sense in this preparation, wonder, once again, at the overwhelming love as we've been, these songs were chosen specifically for this message, but this incredible love of God that He would choose to save and redeem us and, and set us free. And not only choose to save, redeem us, but choose to partner with us in the spreading of his love in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's quite overwhelming, and it's been an incredible journey for me. So we're going to look at a few things very briefly uh, from the Old Testament, from Exodus, very briefly. And in the context of what I'm preaching on redemption, I would love you to go and read through Exodus and just see the picture in the, in the old, filled uh, in Jesus Christ in the new. And so, um, we're going to, before we start that, I just wanted to put that one verse of the, uh, of the song that we, one of the songs we sang today, and I just want to read it because it's extremely overwhelming, and it encapsulates uh, redemption for, soul, for sure. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, he chases me down and fights till I am found. He leads the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Of the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Just meditating on that and Trusting in my life, too, for a true restoration of full first love relationship with God. You see, when we fall out of love with God, 
It's often because we've lost that revelation of his love for us. And we see that in David's life where he goes through a period where he takes his eyes off God and he gets into trouble and he falls, in, uh, he, he falls into adultery. And we know the story of Bathsheba well. Um, Nathan the prophet comes in, confronts him. He accepts responsibility for his sin. And he writes Psalm 91, I mean 51, the Psalm of Repentance, something we should read often. And he lays out Barry's heart before God and asks for forgiveness. But one of the things he says in there is he says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Restore unto me. Life is tough. Life is hard. David's life was tough. He was fighting wars and, and didn't have it easy uh, all the time. But he took his eyes off God. He took his eyes off his first love, and things went wrong. And so, as we speak about this, I'm praying afterwards for two things, that that rest- restoration will come in our lives, and the other thing, that if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you will commit your life to him and ask for forgiveness. That's what I'm faithful today. And you see, being a good person or being a frequent member and visitor or participant in a church, as good and as wonderful as that, does not make us a Christian. It's like being a beautiful car... Uh, and, and, and putting it in a garage, we know that's a car. But me living in a garage as much as I want to doesn't make me a car. And coming to church and those things, we need to understand through the traditions of man, coming to church does not make us a born-again Christian. Only Jesus Christ can. And he wants to do that. And if you've never done that or received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I, I pray that you will, um, through the anointing of the Holy Spirit, do that today. You see, redemption is a theme that resonates in the heart of each one of us. We see from cover to cover in the Bible that the Bible is full of God's loves, of God's stories of God's love and man's rebellion and God's eternal plan for redemption for God, mankind. And we see this in the book of Exodus, which begins with God's children in slavery and ends with their freedom. See the old, and you can see the new. And this is a very brief overview of some of the highlights of Exodus. It's not going to be a long message. I'm praying that you will see God in this, in this, on this topic. He says... To fulfill God's, God's plan of redemption for the Israelites who were in slavery, the first thing he did was choose a man. A man named Moses, through whom he would execute his plan. And what we need to understand is that we are in a divine partnership with God. If Jesus was going to fulfill the Great Commission on his own, 
He should never have just ministered for, 30, uh, for three years. If I was God, and which I'm not, I would have kept Jesus here forever. Because who better could do that? But no, he prepared a people. He prepared a church. He prepared a people through whom and through which he would manifest his wisdom and his redemption. And he did that in, for the children of Israel. And in Exodus 3 verse 12, Moses has just had the experience with God, is having that experience with God speaking uh, to him through the burning bush. He's standing on holy ground. He's asked to take, God tells him to take off his sandals. And in a sense, speaking of this today, I feel the weight of the holiness and the holy ground that we are standing on today. And he has this conversation, and Moses has every reason why he can't do it. And he's, a, he's a, got stammering lips. He can't speak well. Um, he's reminding God of all of his faults. But the key to that Exodus chapter 3, where he's having this conversation, is when God says this, and he reveals his plan to Moses in this one verse. He says, I will be with you. And this shall be a sign that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve and worship me on this mountain. What he is saying is, Moses, I'm going to set you free from slavery to Pharaoh and bring you into a place of worship and freedom to serve and worship me. Because some of the transitions, uh, 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 translations of um, Exodus 3.12 use the word serve instead of worship. But we need to understand that serving God is the primary way that we worship Him. Coming to church on a Sunday, singing songs as, as we do, and God's grace meeting us is an act of worship. But our lives are to be worshipped to Him. And the best way we do that is through service. And he's starting to set the children of Israel up and us in Exodus with that amazing truth. And this is brilliantly encapsulated in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, where God says this, the first commandment, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery and you shall have no other gods before me. He goes on to say he's a jealous God. That he, he, he saved them to worship and serve him. And by doing that, we would serve each other. And then nearing the end of Exodus, you can see these are very small highlights. Lots on the chopping floor this week. But Exodus 32 to 40, the second half, there's two major events that occur. And both of them are acts of worship. The first is false worship. Moses was up the mountain, received the mountain of the Lord, this mountain that he met uh, um, God on at, with the, in, the, in the fire, in the bush. He's up the mountain, and while he's gone, the children of Israel build 
or create a golden calf to worship. And the second is true worship. They go through, God wants to, um, God um, punishes them. You can read the whole story and so on. But he's always a God of grace. Because a few chapters later, we see the story turn to not to worship to false gods, but worship to the true God. And we see that in the building of the tabernacle. You read that from Exodus 35 to 40. That God has called them to worship the true God. And the first major problem was a problem. The first false worship was a problem, and worship of God is the solution. And instead of being forced as slaves to build Pharaoh's cities, God invites them to build a tabernacle in which he would, under the old covenant, dwell. This is the first time that God again began to dwell with his people. In the garden, he had fellowship with Adam and Eve, but because of sin and rebellion, they were taken out of the garden, and God would speak through people, but he never dwelled with them. And this is the first time where in the Holy of Holies, the Shekinah of glory of God is, there's a cloud uh, over the place, the presence of God was so thick, and God made his habitation against man again, tabernacle. But here's the key. Today, like the children of Israel, mankind is still enslaved to all kinds of sin and oppression. Mankind is worshiping false gods and is in desperate need of redemption. They are looking for love in all the wrong places. It could be like I, before I was saved, thrown myself into wanting to be rich and putting all my time and effort at the expense of my family to that. I, in a sense, was serving that. False gods and false idols are anything that has more preeminence in your life than Jesus Christ. That's an idol. And God wants us to worship Him. And mankind is desperate to worship the true God. And in order to redeem mankind once and for all, God did not choose a man this time under the new covenant. He did not choose another Moses. God the Father chose God the Son. His only begotten Son was sent to earth with a divine plan, and that plan was to rescue and redeem us from the loke of slavery and oppression to the systems of this world and the gods of this world. And in order to do this, Jesus had to pay a price. You see, redemption, the word redemption and to redeem was a word that was used uh, when uh, slaves would be redeemed or bought from their owners to be set free. People would have 
compassion on a slave, maybe become friends with that slave. And the only way that that slave could be freed would be if a price was paid. Same with us, enslaved to sin. Same with us, enslaved to all of the stuff that is on us. The only way that we could be redeemed was to pay someone to pay that price. And God didn't send an angel. God didn't create somebody on earth to be that that price. He sent His only begotten Son, that whomsoever should believe in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. And there's two passages of Scripture. I'm going to read just... I'm going to read just one of them um, today. But if you want to, and if you're taking notes, if you go and read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 to 10, Paul lays out there to the story of redemption. But in Romans 5, and I, and I chose this because it's one of my favorite passages Paul, speaking of salvation and redemption, verse 6 to 8, writes this. Just at the right time, when we were powerless, God died for the ungodly. We all have a just of a right time. We all have an appointment with God. We all have an opportunity. You see... uh, Slavery to Pharaoh was not free for the people. They had no choice. But become in a bondservant of Jesus Christ is a free will. God wants us to choose him. He doesn't want to force himself on him, on us. The ultimate expression of love is free will. People say, why does God allow us to do the stuff we do? Well, if you're in a relationship, in a love relationship, married or, and so on, and you, the, the, the husband, forces his wife to marry her, uh, to, to love her, to love him, forces his wife to do things, we would call that abuse. And God will not abuse our, our right to choose or not to choose Him because He loves us. He did not want robots. He wanted a relationship with His children, who we are. And we see just as the right time when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly die. But God demonstrates His love in this. And I have that this underlined in my Bible as much as I can in the little space that there is. In this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, there's a gospel out there that says He demonstrates His love through stuff. Come to Jesus and you'll be happy. Come to Jesus and you'll have lots of bucks. Come to Jesus and you'll have no issues. Well, how many of you know 
That's not true who are Christians. It's not true. Because it's not, love is not demonstrated in stuff. His love is demonstrated in His Son, Jesus Christ. We devalue the gift when we equate our prosperity and our blessing that God wants to lavish on us to God's love to us over and above His love for through His Son, Jesus Christ. He demonstrates His love in this. An amazing truth. And Isaiah, speaking of the coming Messiah, in Isaiah 2, 6 to 7, writes this. Speaking 600 years before Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, God gives him and reveals the plan of redemption to Isaiah. Go and read Isaiah. It's an amazing book. And it, but in this passage, he says, I, the Lord your God, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand, and I will keep you and make you to be a covenant people and a light to the Gentiles. God's always plan was for all nations. Yes, Israel has a very special place, but we see right here under the old covenant, it was for his covenant people and for us, the Gentiles. And what does he want? To open the eyes that are blind. There's a spiritual blindness. Ephesians, uh, Corinthians 6 says this, The God of this world has blinded the hearts and the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And really what Paul is saying to me there is we cannot debate and argue people into the kingdom. We need to pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that revelation of God's love come. Yes, we need to give an account of our faith, but what we need is the power of God to take the blinders off, to set the captives free, to declare the day of the Lord's favor. That is a supernatural thing that happens in and through us. And he uses our words, yes, but he uses our lifestyle. He uses our, afferents, uh, our actions towards one another. Because through that, he creates an atmosphere where the, that softens a heart and where the Holy Spirit can penetrate. He, he partners with us in every aspect of what he's doing in the earth. Jesus came to set the captives free. But this is not a freedom without constraint or boundaries. Come to Jesus, you're you saved now, you've bought some fire insurance, you're not going to go to hell and live as you like. There's a lot of that going around. It's a freedom out of our free will to choose to serve, honor, and worship God. To allow God to make a transformation, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Where people come to us and see there's something different with us. The sad thing for me is sometimes I, I, I don't know the difference. 
in a crowd. And I'm not saying we have to be holy Joes and, and try and walk on water and wear a halo or something. It's something that should just flow through us. People should say, man, you look, you're quite normal, but what is it about you? What is it about you? And the best way you can witness to people is not to shove a Bible down their mouth, but to tell them about the transformation in your life. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. You see, people can argue who created God, what came first, the chicken or the egg, um, who is God, whose God is real, but they cannot argue with a genuinely transformed life through the power of the Holy Spirit. They can't do it. They, they might not like you as much anymore because you've changed, but they know something's different. And that's the Holy Spirit within us. Freedom to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. The story of the woman of the well. She gets into a conversation because she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew. Where do we worship? And I'm not going to go into that because Jews worship there in the temple and we worship here who's right. It's like saying, what church do you go to? doesn't matter what church you go to. Is are you a Christian? Do you love God? All churches are part of God's kingdom. And he cuts right to the chase. He says, true worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth. We've negated worship to sing in a few songs, and this is worship. But this should be an overflow of our lives, of what's happening there. And what is truth? People know truth is genuineness to me. Truth is not fake. And when people see, listen, gee, you struggle and you fall and you do all things that, you know, maybe you shouldn't, but there's something different in you. We are sinners saved by grace. We are work in progress. But God knows our hearts, and he can see the truth of where we are in our hearts. And he's wooing us back to a place where we are truly true to ourselves and true to God. And when we fall, his grace is sufficient. And if we're not falling once a day, then maybe we're not moving. It's part of the process. And God forgives us for that. You see, the Westminster Catechism asked this question. These theologians in England were grappling with the truths of God, and they wanted to put it in a way that people could easily understand. And the first question they wanted to answer was this, what is the chief end of man? Can you imagine that debate? Must have been absolutely amazing. I wonder how wide it went and all of that. What is the chief end of man? And after the searching the scriptures, 
and much prayer, and I, I, I believe many months on that one question, they came up with this answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Isn't that amazing? And how do we glorify God? By reading the Bible all day, and yes, reading the Bible is important, by praying all day. Yes, we can't do that all day, but doing those things, we glorify God, first of all, by accepting that we cannot save ourselves and acknowledging Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. That brings glory to God. We glorify God by living our lives in relationship and faithful service to Him. That brings glory to God. The greatest in the kingdom are the servants. And I thank God for the people that serve in this church, for the people that serve in our Sunday school, and those people that serve behind the coffee, people that put the chairs out, people that... Make, uh, come to worship practices, people that are praying, people that are serving. And I want to encourage you to come along the journey. Because as hard as servanthood can be, there's nothing more fulfilling than being part of a community and serving together. We've led this church for 22 years, and one day we might tell the story of how God brought us from South Africa to do that again for, for new people. But before this, believe it or not, I was in corporate finances in an international banking system, making good money. God called me out of that, I, we believe he did, to go into full-time ministry. And as hard as it sometimes has been, and as difficult as it has been sometimes, we have never felt inwardly so more fulfilled than serving God, serving the people, to see you wonderful people here, serving churches around the world, serving wherever we can. And we have to put boundaries, but I tell, sitting in the bleachers is the most boring and dangerous place to be. The church is not to meant to be a spectator sport. I'll tell you my funny story with hockey. I came from South Africa. Rugby is a big deal, and I love rugby. Until I watched a game or two of hockey, and I thought, geez, these guys love to contact and all of that. And I thought, this is awesome. This makes rugby look a bit tame to me. And I fell in love with hockey. Then I became a a fan with my brother-in-law of the Canucks, my son-in-law. And um, he knows hockey a lot, and he showed me a few things about it. But then I realized it didn't take me long when Henrik and Daniel would make a mistake, and I'm sitting in the bleachers in my lounge, and I'm telling what an idiot he is. I'll confess something. I cannot even skate. But I am telling these guys, you idiot, Luongo, get rid of him. 
Whatever. That's bleacher mentality. But I tell you, in the change room, if it's a good team and a united team, they get around the guy that made the biggest mistake and say, it's okay. A good coach would do that. It's okay. Let's get out there. We've got more time. The game's not over. Let's get out there. Let's forget about that. Let's put it behind us. High five the guy. Pat him on the back. Imagine if I was in that change room. You bunch of idiots. Okay, you do it. What? Me? Oh, you guys are so good. It changed very quickly. So I'm telling you that. God created us for community. And as this community grows, it's going to be important that we reach out beyond ourselves and beyond our friends. That we reach out and draw people into community. Nathan prayed over that this morning in an amazing way. God is not wanting just observers on a Sunday. God is not even wanting us to honor the, us with, his, with our lips, as he says in John 4. God is wanting worshipers that are a lifestyle. He's not looking for perfection. If we were perfect, we wouldn't need Jesus Christ. He's looking for us sinners saved by grace, worshiping God in everything we do. You see, we're worshiping by honoring and being obedient to His Word. There's a massive attack on the Word of God to make the Word of God culturally relevant. And either the Bible is true or it's a bigger pack of lies. That's the black and white of it. Either Jesus was the Son of God, He was a maniac for doing that. I'm just putting it black and white. You see, we, either culture has precedence over the Word of God, and culture continually changes, or the Word of God has precedence over culture. And it's hard to stand for truth. And unfortunately, the church has not done a good job of speaking the truth in love. And so we've got a lot to ask forgiveness for. We've got a lot to repent from. God loves everybody. Color code, creed, sexual orientated. God wants, loves all of them, and he wants them to come to know him as their Lord and Savior. And we do that by serving those communities. We do that by going downtown and serving the poor, serving the hungry. So we have people that go and give food to prostitutes down there. We have people that feed the, the down there and, and love these people because God loves them. He saved prostitutes. He hung with prostitutes. He hung with drunkards. He hung with sinners. He was called a drunkard and a wine bibber by the religious crew and a friend of sinners. He wore the friend of sinners as a badge of honor. For all have sinned 
and come short of the glory of God. And if we are going to impact this nation and this world as this little group here, here, we can and we will. If we get a revelation of Father love for us and we walk in that revelation as best we can, serving everybody, not judging them, loving them, and allow God to do what He does best. I want any one of you to put up your hand if you were able to save yourself. If you couldn't save yourself, stop trying to save everybody else. Sow seeds of love, seed of the word. Love them. Let the Holy Spirit captivate them, and God will transform their lives, not in an intellectual way, but from the inside out, because that's what he did to me. Deborah got saved nearly two years before me. I did not like Christians. I did not like the church. I confess all my sins right now to you. But at that stage, and I was horrified. It wasn't easy for Deborah. But she never tried to argue me into the kingdom because I had all these clever questions I just randomly make up. But what I couldn't do in the long run is argue with her life. Not perfect, but there was a peace and there was a joy in the midst of all my chaos. There was none of that. And so it wasn't wise and persuasive words. It was a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And the Spirit demonstrates His power in raising the dead, but the biggest way I believe He demonstrates His power is in transforming a life by the power of His Spirit. And we don't have to know anything. We just need to be a conduit. Man, I don't know your answers. I don't know what it is. There may be some dudes that I can find that can help you along the way. But I want to tell you my story. I was dead. I was lost. And I'm alive today. Jesus saved me. No, no questions. That's it. You see, the Word of God. Paul, in his final writings in Timothy, to his son in the faith, and if you want to read anybody's true heart, read their final writings or letters if they have one to their family and friends. It's not, hey, how is the fishing today? How did the Canucks do? All of this. And, hey, I just want to tell you something. I want to tell you how much I love you, care for you, and so on. So in that context, he's writing to Timothy, his true son in the faith. And he says this, in the presence of God, I implore you to preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season to give an account. For a time will come, Timothy, when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to treat the itching ears, they will gather around them a great number of teachers, should I say false teachers, that will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. But you, Timothy, preach the word, but in love. You see, the, the streets of heaven are going to be filled with ex-captive slaves to sin and all of it, like you and I. 
is going to be populated with slaves to sin, slaves to drugs, slaves to addiction that have been set free by the power of God, and we will be one, some of them. Because through no merit of our own, we have been redeemed, forgiven, and set free. Former slaves to sin, who through the sacrifice of Jesus have become saints, holy and dearly loved children of God. And that's what God says. Jesus on the cross at Calvary paid the price for our freedom from slavery to sin. And as a result, rescued us from the eternal consequences of that sin. In Colossians chapter 1, 13 to 14, it's encapsulated in these two verses to me, for he rescued us from the dominion of darkness, or you could say he redeemed us, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves, in whom we have redemption. And the total forgiveness of sin. That's the God we serve. That's a God that I serve. And that's a God with this revelation which will call us to willingly when you go where no one wants to go. That song, You Two Streets With No Names. I have a friend, Keir Taylor, you may have met him. Met him. As a young Christian, he took hold of that street with no names. And he said, I want to go to villages and towns in Africa and Asia, wherever God, where streets have no names. Forty years later, later, I just saw a thing from him. On a motorbike with some friends, Backpacks in Mozambique, and under there's this picture of them riding through the bush, going to plant another church. And I've been with Kier a number of times. And you can say it's exciting, but it's hard work. And it's dangerous work. We have people, nameless people, people that say, maybe even in this church, We've got to change it. Does anybody know my name? Does anybody care? And so I want to tell you, if that is you, first and foremost, I believe God sheds tears over you. Because he loves you. But I also want to tell you this. The key to getting out of those is not only God filling you with his love, but you stepping out and determining that you do not want another lonely person in this church or on the streets. You are going to reach out to others because when we reap, when we sow, we reap. And that other might be so hurt that you go and say, hi, man, I just want to hang with you, and they just go off the rails. Well, I'm not doing that again. What good was that? I bet you, whether you like it or not, 
or whether you nod or not, something happened in their hearts. And the next time, when you go back, and they do it again, and you do it again, imagine the times that I rejected Jesus, uses his name in vain, and, and defiled his church with my words, and yet he came back again and again, and he saved me. And we can be those people, if you're in that, as hard as it is, say, God, I'm going to be one. And if they don't even receive me, God, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it because I want to sow seed, and seed has a harvest. You see, we can, God says, turns everything around for bad for good. And when bad things happen, and you've been hurt, identify people with that. If you've gone through a divorce or something, and somehow the church made that unforgivable sin. I have no idea how that even happened. But you've been an alcoholic, or you've been this. You know the pain. You know what it's like. And instead of being ashamed of it because we've been now been set free, it's an opportunity to reach out to people living in shame and fear and condemnation because they've been or are going through the same things right now in this very church and too scared to speak to anybody else about it because the church has not done a good thing with confidentiality. But if we can get to that place where we use what we have or who we are and we tell our story, yes, I understand, terrible Child abuse, all of those things. It should never have happened, and God is weeping over that. But Jesus has set me free. Can I help you? Instead of living in, the, in, in, in this dark cave where the enemy, as you step into light, roars at you and pushes you back in your whole life, God has set you free. He remembers your sin no more, and you're wholly blameless because of him. Walk in freedom, church. And people accuse me, yes, I was that. Paul says in 1, in 1 Timothy 2, I, I was a violent man because I persecuted the church. I actually gave approval to Stephen's death. I was hunting Christians down to kill them. But God, who is rich in mercy, and because of his grace, it says, made me alive in Christ. And because he did that, I've served him my whole life out of gratitude. And I've used my testimony as a, as a stepping stone to reach into other lives. Because when you're honest with others, they might abuse it. But God's forgiven you. But it opens a door for them to be honest with you. And allow the Holy Spirit to guide you and what to say and what not to say. But that's where freedom comes. That brings glory to God. And I want us to be a people, and we are. But I want to be a people that those people bring glory to God. Can we pray? And if we're going to break bread, if the worship team can please uh, come forward. It's, we've got 20 minutes. And we're going to break bread. If you can bow your heads. Two things I feel, 
And both of these things I've been through myself. And I'm a work in progress. If you save, given your heart to Jesus, repented of your sin, ask for forgiveness, you are free. But there's an accuser of the brethren, the Bible tells us. And his major sad strategy for you is guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. Could have, would have, should have. Didn't do this yesterday. Forgot to read my Bible. I went out and I had too many beers, whatever it is. God wants to change those habits. But don't allow that to stop you from fulfilling your call. I believe someone people with guilt and shame and feel that they've let God down. In this very church, God is calling to lead churches in the future. God is calling to partner. God is calling you to step up again. And you know that longing in your heart. And you know it's there and you feel this tug and it makes you feel more guilty because you know it's there and you're not fulfilling it and it's this and the enemy's having a field way. You need to say, like Paul, yes, I was that. I was a violent man. Yes, I did that. But because of God's grace, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to do more for God. I'm going to turn that around. And I'm not allowed to use people. And if people in my past come and say that was you, say absolutely right. I promise you, most of what you said is true. But I want to tell you my story of redemption. I want to tell you. They might sneer and laugh. They might gossip. But something's pierced their hearts. I could do that with Deborah when she got saved. Yeah, but this, yeah, but that. But Jesus... And I pray for the Holy Spirit as you open your hands. I just pray if you position yourself just on your laps or whatever with your hands open. I'm going to ask God to break the power of that. If you don't want to open your hands, that's also good. I want to ask God to break the power of that over your life. There's no future in your past. There's no glory in your past. His glory and a future in our future. So Holy Spirit, I pray. Ezekiel 36, I think is this. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. He's talking to children of Israel who are a lot of guilt and shame. It's one of the darkest hours of, in the history. The judgment of God has come. And in the middle of this, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. The reign of the Spirit. And he goes on. Holy Spirit, I pray for the reign of the Spirit. Do not hold back. The church needs you. We need you. And God needs you. Allow those things to wash away by the power of the Spirit. And tomorrow when he tries again, allow God to sprinkle that through the Holy Spirit that water and cleanse you. And when it comes again, 
Do it again. Humble yourself before the Lord, the Word says. Submit to God. And He says this in 1 Peter 5, And after you have suffered a little while, He will rescue you or deliver you. There's a process. Humbling. Submitting to God. Because there's an enemy. And when we humble ourselves, God, instead of resisting us, He resists the devil. And after a little while, you'll find, by just saying, God, I can't do this, but you can. I submit myself to you. And as you do that, finally, it might take a while to get all the, the dirt off us. It might be more than one shower, one more real frame for it. It might be months of it. But allow Him to do it every day. Allow Him a new day. And if, if, if you fall that day, allow Him to do it again. And allow Him to do it again. And allow Him to do it again. Because He wants to cleanse us. He wants to set us free. And we all have sinned. We all have hurt people. We all have messed up. And I, more than likely more than most of you, do not qualify to stand in the front here on my own. Holy Spirit, cleanse. Break the power of words, of accusations, even from pastors and leaders over people's lives, Lord. Even from loved ones. Those are the hardest. Lord, I pray you wash those away. You say you will restore what the locusts have eaten. Bring restoration, Holy Spirit. We need workers. The workers are few because the enemy has enchained good people with guilt and shame. We break the power of that in the mighty name of Jesus. If you haven't ever made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, it might be because you didn't even know you had to. Being in a church that just joining the church or being christened as a baby made you a Christian. Unfortunately, every single one of us have to make our own decision. And when you're six months old, there's no way you're making your own decisions. I'm not against that, dedicating children to the Lord. But we cannot equate that with salvation. I'm asking you to bow your heads and I'm going to pray a prayer. You can pray it in your heart. But I ask you, if you pray this prayer, number one, that God is going to save you, if you believe that, no matter what you've done. And number two, that you find someone and tell them. Because speaking it out, in a sense, confirms it in your heart. You might say, hey, you know, it could be another Christian or someone and say, you know, hey, and I'm going to pray for the peace of God. So simple prayer. And I'm going to say it slowly and ask you to say it in your heart. We could lift hands, but I believe this is a heart moment. Say, Father God, I thank you for sending your son. Father God, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner 
and that I cannot save myself. But Father God, I ask for forgiveness. I say sorry for what I've done, Lord God. And I ask you, Jesus, to come into my life, to save me, to set me free. And Lord Jesus, I want to receive you today as not only as my Savior, that's only half of that truth but as my Lord and Savior. I'm breaking the power of my slavery and lordship to sin. In the name of Jesus, and I'm coming under by faith, through grace, through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross and I'm going to step under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I ask you to come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. I acknowledge that you died for my sin on the cross. You paid the price I could not pay. And now that I am forgiven, not only of my past sin, my present sin, but future sin. And I choose with all my heart to worship you and glorify you. And Lord, when I fall and I stumble, I know you will reach out your hand and forgive me 70 times 7 every day if I need it. And I declare you as my Lord and Savior and that I am now a born again, born by the Spirit, child of God. Jesus' name. Amen. Can we give the Lord a praise offering?